Thanks, Tim. Worshiping, that was awesome. Loved it. All right, if you would, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we'll begin this morning. Ladies, I know that there were other ways in which you experienced uh, acceptance or rejection as you were growing up, but for, uh, for us as guys, it was on the playground every day uh, when we were selected or not selected for the team or the order in which we were selected, which basically determined our value as human beings for that particular, that particular day. So a couple weeks ago, I asked my kids, so if you were captains and you got to select your team, who would you choose? Because I know they're friends, and they said, wisely, well, Dad, it depends on what the competition is. You know, is it, are we playing soccer, are we doing basketball, or is it, you know, math or science or history? Because we would select differently because we want to win, right? So you might select the person who is, who's the, the, the best in terms of their height or their speed, or it might be the person who's smartest and has the best memory, because the goal is to win. The goal is to win. And we all want to belong, don't we? We want, we want to be selected. We want to have a sense that we belong to the group and that we can make a valuable contribution to that group. Last week, we started our study of the fatherhood of God, and what we discovered is that God has revealed himself most importantly as Father, Son, and Spirit, a trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit, a family, the family of God. Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect fellowship with one another, loving in one another, delighting in one another, fellowshipping together for all of eternity before we even existed. And then the Father initiated creation because he wanted to share that love. And the Father initiated redemption because he wanted us to experience that sense of belonging and family because God is a great father. And what does a great father do? A great father creates a great family. And in a great family, there is a sense of belonging and there's a sense of value. No matter how many children, each one of us has a particular role to play that no one else can play. And we belong to that family. So how is it that God brought us into his family? Paradoxically, he brought us into his family by rejecting his son. We were brought in to the family of God, the rejection of the only begotten son of God. Matthew chapter 20, it says, Now from noon until three, darkness came over the whole land. At about three o'clock, Jesus shouted with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the middle of the day, the whole earth became dark because darkness represents the absence of God's presence. Light is the presence of God and darkness his absence. And so God pulled back because the sin of of all of humanity for all of time, was resting upon his one beloved son, but he could not look upon his son with favor because his son bore our sins. And so God turned his back. Can't explain it, but somehow there was a a, a rupture, a fracturing in this eternal fellowship between father, son, and spirit. And Jesus died as a result. He died because he was bearing our sin, and because he was bearing our sin, his fellowship was broken with the Father, and that broke his heart, and he gave up his life so that we could be brought into the family of God. God rejected his son. 
because we were born into a family that opposed God and hated God, a family that was in fact completely corrupt. Read with me in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were born into a family with slaves of sin and death. The opposite of being a son in the Bible is to be a slave. Because a son has rights, but a slave has no rights. Aristotle once wrote, There is nothing common to ruler and ruled. There is not friendship either between craftsman and tool. The slave is a living tool and the tool a lifeless slave. The slave might as well not be alive. He's just a tool. And Paul tells us we're tools. We're tools of sin and we're tools of death, meaning we don't have rights. We don't have strength over sin and death. We don't have a choice. Being born into a family that is is corrupt, a family that is against God, we don't have a choice not to sin. And you say to yourself, well, I'm I'm not that bad. I'm not completely bad. Well, you're not as bad as you could be, that's true. But before we enter into the family of God, every choice that we make is to serve our own self-interest, not the interest of God. And that's described as sin. Even the choices that we make that appear to be good choices are for ourselves. We are committed to ourselves. And so we are slaves of self-interest. We are slaves of sin. The result is we're also slaves of death. Death means separation. We're separated from God, so we don't choose for God. We choose for self. And that separation will become permanent if we are not reconciled to God. That separation will become illustrated in the separation of body from spirit, that is physical death. And we are slaves of that. We have no rights. We have no power over it. We were born servants of Satan, Paul says. Chapter 2, verse 2. You formerly walked or lived in death. You walked according to the course of this world or this age, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That is uh, Satan, whose name is translated adversary. He is the great deceiver. He's the one who tricks you into thinking that your choices are good, when your choices, in fact, are for yourself. And if you're choosing for yourself, you're choosing against God. And Satan deceives you and you become his tool. A tool of the adversary, a tool of Satan, a tool of sin and death. Paul says we are, in fact, not children of God. We were born children of wrath. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, We were by our very nature children of wrath that is belonging to the family of wrath even as the rest. Wrath is God's anger towards sin. God hates sin. I want you to step back with me again into uh, eternity past where we went last week. In eternity past, 
God was not lonely. God was not bored. God was full. Father, Son, and Spirit were enjoying one another, delighting in one another, fellowshipping with one another, not experiencing wrath, but it's experiencing love and only love. In other words, God never knew wrath before he created, but then he created and men and women made in his image rebelled against him, and for the first time, God experienced wrath. In other words, wrath is not fundamental to the very nature of God. God is love, but God is also holy. We can't say God is wrath, 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 but we can say God is holy, holy, holy. He is perfect in his holiness, meaning all of his attributes are whole and complete and perfect. And so he can't look with sin, upon sin with favor. He must look upon sin with anger because he hates sin. It's a violation of his holiness, and yet God loves. And so he looked upon his creatures who were children of wrath, and he loved them in spite of their sin, and so he poured out his wrath against sin upon his own son, Jesus Christ. He rejected the son so that we could be adopted into his family. He poured out all, upon, all of his wrath for all of our sin upon the son so that we could be accepted in the beloved. Read with me chapter 2, verse 4. It says, but God. Those are two really important words. You should highlight those. You're born into a family that hated God, every single one of us, dead in our transgressions of sin, tools of the enemy, having no power, having no hope, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did God look upon us in love? Because he is gracious toward us in Christ. Turn back to chapter 1 and verse 3. Paul begins his letter with a, a hymn. It's a hymn of praise. And he says, blessed, praise be God that is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Nothing is worse than being rejected. Probably all have felt that at one point or another. Nothing is worse than not being wanted. But nothing is better than being accepted. Being loved. And being loved just for who you are, not for what you've done. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, before the foundations of the earth, that is before God created time and space, before he began human history, before you existed, God loved you. That is not based upon anything you had done or anything that you would do, but just because God is love. Because God is love, he looked at you in a family alienated from him, knowing all the choices that you'd make, and he said, I want you. I want you in my family. I'm going to take you out of that family, and I'm going to adopt you for my own. Verse 5. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons. 
Now, in order to really understand where Paul is going with this argument, we need to understand what are, what are the privileges of adoption. He's drawing from the Roman practice in the first century. And he's importing spiritual meaning into this really significant cultural event. First privilege of adoption was physical provision. That is food and shelter and clothing. The basic needs of life. But also a family name that is an identity. Taken from outside, a child of wrath to become a child of God. There's also relatives that were given. Not just the immediate family, but grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and the safety and the security and the significance of being involved with and belonging to a family. There was an inheritance. Adopted sons were real sons. And when the parents passed away, the inheritance went to all the children. There was a trade. If the father was skilled, he passed that trade along. So there wasn't just present provision, but future provision. A child could provide for himself. And marriage, as long as you had a family name and now that you had a trade and you had an inheritance to look forward to, you were eligible. There would be people who would look upon you favorably so that your provision could be made again, not just in the present, but also in the future. Now you may have noticed he said, what you have received is the adoption of sons. Why didn't Paul say your sons and daughters? Doesn't he like girls? That's not it at all. In the first century, daughters didn't have any privilege. Daughters didn't have rights and rights of inheritance. And so if Paul had said your sons and daughters, they might have received the impression that some were sons and some were just daughters. Instead, Paul looks out upon the men and women to whom he is serving, and he says, no, you're all sons. That is, you all have the rights and the privileges that are attached to sonship in Jesus Christ. And not only that, we're told in the New Testament, we're not just just sons, we're actually firstborn sons, all of us. Hebrews chapter 12. But you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads, thousands and thousands of, of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And firstborn there is plural. It's not talking about Jesus, men and women. It's talking about us. We are the firstborn. And the firstborn gets what? Double inheritance and the privilege of representing the family name. We are the church, the assembly, the fellowship, the family of firstborn. So Paul takes this uh, very earthly analogy, image of adoption, and he imports significance spiritually into our lives. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. What are the spiritual privileges of adoption? Paul writes, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. For spiritual provision of adoption is redemption. And again, to understand what Paul is driving at, it helps to understand the Roman process of adoption. If a prospective father wanted to take a young man as his son, 
He would go to the other father or often to a master and propose adoption because it might not be someone's son, but often a slave that he wanted to bring into his home as a son. So this man would approach the other family and he would offer a purchase price and he would actually purchase this prospective son three times. He would purchase him once and that one would become his slave. And then he would release him and he would revert back to slavery to the original family. And then he would go and purchase him a second time and he would become his slave again and then he would release him. He'd go back to the original family as a slave. And then he'd purchase him a third time as his slave. He'd bring him into his home and he would declare him now a son. Purchased three times, belonging to him forever. All past debts were canceled. All obligations to the previous family were canceled. He belonged to this family. Do you see the spiritual significance? You were purchased out of the family that was under the wrath of God because of sin, and you were purchased once, twice, three times. You were triple purchased, so to speak. That is, the deal is sealed. You belong to God, and not just as a slave, but as a son. With all of the rights and privileges attached, you have no obligation to that previous family, and all your debts are paid. Isn't that beautiful? The best analogy that I can help you understand this with in, in our modern world is my cat. Um, you, I, do, I do have a cat. I've mentioned our, our cat before. I never plan on owning a cat. Didn't want to own a cat. Some days I'm pretty sure I don't want to own a cat now, but I do. We own a cat. And the way that we got our cat was uh, my daughter tricked me. Um, she kept saying, oh, Dad, you know, we've got to have a cat. I need a pet. I need something to love. And you know, I'll graduate and be gone someday, and I'll have missed this experience of raising a pet. And, you know, I mean, she's working me, working me, working me. You know, I mean, no kidding, like daily. And I kept putting her off. I go, well, you know, mom's got allergies. So we can't have a cat. You know, I just get put her off, put her off. She goes, well, dad, can't we, why don't we just, let's just go down to the, to the animal shelter and look. And that way I'll get to hold cats and at least play with them, even though I can't have one myself. And I said, yes. Right. I mean, yes, I confess she's smarter than I am. So we would go down to the shelter and we would hold cats and then we'd put the cats back. You know, and okay, dad. We can't have a cat. You know, we put it back. So, you know, and, and I kept doing this. I kept doing this. So, we, you know, time after time, we, we kept going down. Dad, can we go to the animal shelter again so I can hold some cats that aren't mine? Right? And so we'd go back. And, we, and so one day we went down and she's holding this cat and playing with this cat. She said, oh, Dad, you sure can't, can't we take this one home? And I had this, this, you know, this moment of weakness, right? Just this momentary lapse and sanity. And, and you know, the, the animal shelter person came out and said, don't you want to redeem this cat from slavery in prison? And now they didn't say that. Actually, they said we were running a special $12. Like, okay, 12 bucks. All right. So, so I gave in for $12 and we came home and <laughs> Tristy's like, what? You, you, you bought a cat? We didn't talk about this. We didn't talk about, we talked about petting, not purchasing, right? So here we are. We own a cat, but we did redeem that cat from slavery from the prison of the pound, from a potentially harmful family, right? We're a much better family than any family could have experienced. The love that my daughter gives this cat, we redeem that cat for ourselves. That cat, for better or worse, belongs to us forever. That's redemption. God looked at you, dead and separated in your sins. He said, I want you. I will pay for you. I will pay any price 
I will pay the highest price. I will pay with my son. First Peter chapter one. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That word for redemption refers to going into the marketplace of slavery and purchasing one off of the auction block, not to become simply a slave, but to become a son. This is what God has done for us. Or as Paul writes in Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Chapter 1 of Ephesians actually is just just one long run-on sentence where Paul begins to talk about the lavish, lavish riches of the grace of God and he can't stop. He doesn't even put in a comma or a question mark or a semicolon or a period or anything. He just goes on. Says, this is why God loves you, because God is gracious. Grace means his, his kindness and his favor bestowed upon you, although you do not deserve it. You deserve wrath because of your sin, but God is gracious because God is love. And so he pours out the riches of his grace. He, grace, he lavishes them upon us in Jesus Christ, although we do not deserve it. That's the very nature of grace. Anybody ever seen um, uh, Sound of Music? Kind of old musical, right? We forced our kids to watch it so they could relate to us. <laughs> but if you, if you don't know the story, there's a character, Maria, in the story. And she's a, a governess. She's a tutor. She's teaching uh, the children of a captain in Austria. Very wealthy, uh, very well-known, very powerful man. And uh, she falls in love with the captain, and when she discovers that he loves her too, she breaks into song, right? Because it's a musical and that's what Austrians do. So she starts singing about this. And she says, uh, she says, here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. Somewhere, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good that you would look upon me and love me. You who are strong and powerful and have a title and a home and wealth will look upon me, a servant, and love me. I must have done something good back there. It's a Christianized view of karma, right? I must have done something good that I'm getting something good back now. That's not the grace of God. The grace of God looks upon us undeserving and says, I love you, although you have done nothing good. Men and women, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Perhaps you're visiting here this morning with friends or family, and the gospel has never made sense to you before. My prayer is that it would make sense this morning, that God's spirit would make it clear in your mind, that you would understand that God loves you in Christ. Because Jesus Christ paid the debt for your sin. God can look upon you with favor and say, I love you, I have paid the debt of your sin. Accept that payment. In 2 Peter chapter 2, it says, there are some who deny even the master who bought them. That is, they say no. The payment has been made, but they choose instead to live in slavery to sin and death. 
So you must make the decision to say, yes, God, I believe. I believe that you paid for my sin with the rejection of your son, Jesus. And because of his rejection, I can be adopted into your family. I believe, thank you, God, for giving Jesus to me. You must make that decision. I encourage you, today could be a wonderful Easter for you. Maybe the best Easter ever. Because you stopped and you took this moment to believe. God loves you. So that's the first blessing of adoption. We are redeemed. God pays the price, the highest price, so that we can belong to him. The second privilege of adoption is intimacy. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So the, the Jews thought of God as Father but in a very distant sense, right? They saw that they were the children of God, and if they're the children of God, God must be their father. But God was always seen very distant. He's referred to as father a few times in the Old Testament. But they were hesitant to approach him boldly and confidently and intimately as father. In fact, even to this day, most Jews won't say the name of God or write the name of God. They'll write G underscore D because God is distant. And Jesus came to earth and he said, no, let me reveal God to you and let me reveal him to you as he is. And he is father. I address him as father. I actually address him as Abba, that is daddy. And so can you. John chapter one says, no one has ever seen God, but the only one himself, God, that is the son who is in closest fellowship with his father. He has made God known. That verb is uh, the verb for exegete. He has exegeted God. He has explained God, made God clear. He has made God known. And how can God be known? He can be known intimately as father. Actually, as, as daddy. That's what Abba means. It's Aramaic for daddy, the term of intimacy. I remember when my kids would climb up on my lap and they would call me daddy. And then as they got older, it became dad. And I was like, let's go back to daddy. I like daddy. Because I want you to feel how much I love you. And I want you to know that you're safe with me. Abba, father, Jesus said. Third privilege of adoption is inheritance. Galatians 4, verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer slaves, but you are sons. And if you're sons, then you are heirs through God. What is the inheritance? He'll tell us the inheritance is the spirit. Your spirit was separated from the spirit of God. That's death. You were born in that condition. But when you believe, you receive the spirit of God. And your spirit is united with the spirit of God. That is spiritual life. You have intimacy with God, the spirit of God. He's a down payment. He's a pledge of future inheritance. And the future inheritance is that we will eternally enjoy the fellowship between father, son, and spirit. We will eternally be brought into that perfect relationship within the triune God. And that when God recreates heavens and earth, we will have meaning and significance to our lives. Because we've been created in the image of God, we've been made as people who could relate to God and relate to one another and enjoy love and fellowship and rule and reign and reflect the character of God upon earth. That is a significant life forever. That is the inheritance that is promised to us. Redemption, intimacy, inheritance. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. In verse 14, Paul reiterates 
and emphasizes these ideas. Romans 8 verse 14. He says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. And if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, since indeed we suffer with him, so that we also may be glorified with him. Why? Why does God do all of this for us? Because God loves children. And God loves those who are weak and vulnerable and who cannot care for themselves. Because that's the nature of God. Remember when Jesus was teaching and healing and touching people's lives and crowds gathered around him and the parents wanted Jesus to touch their children and bless their children. Why? Because parents want the best for their children. And they saw Jesus has something that he can give to our children. Let, let us get our children near to Jesus. And the disciples said, no, 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 no. The master doesn't have time for such foolishness. Take the children away. And Jesus overhears this and he says, obviously you do not know the father or me. Bring me the children. And he touches them and he prays for them and he speaks with them and he shows them respect and love. He blesses them. My church in Prague, there was a family from England and at the end of every service, they would bring their children up so that I could lay my hands on them and pray for them. And it became my favorite moment of every Sunday that I could bless these children in the name of God. Blessing. God loves children. Because he loves those who are weak and those who are vulnerable. That's the heart of God. I love Psalm 127. It says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. God loves children. See, in this analogy, Paul is drawing on the, the Roman practice, but he's drawing upon the Jewish value. He's drawing upon the image of the Roman practice of adoption, but the Jewish value of children, because Romans didn't actually value children. If they had a child that they did not want, that they could not feed, or they didn't want as a part of the family, they would take that child and just leave it outside to die. That's repulsive to the Jews. If there was a child that was in need of family, the Jews would take that family in, whether it was a relative or not, whether it was a Jewish child or not, because they valued children and they valued life. Greatest sin that Israel is judged for, remember as they're taken off the land, is idolatry, not keeping the Sabbath, and not caring for the vulnerable. Not caring for orphans, not caring for widows, not caring for children. Because God loves those who are, in fact, vulnerable. That is a picture of the gospel, men and women. We are those who are vulnerable. We are those who are in need of God rescuing us. Anybody ever read uh, Lord of the Rings? Ever read that? Chronicles of Narnia? A few more. Harry Potter? I got a few more hands, right? Okay. Um, wildly popular book series, all of them. Wildly popular. In my opinion, they're all popular and well-loved 
for exactly the same reason, ultimately. In fact, uh, Harry Potter specifically, uh, J.K. Rowling uh, has sold, I think, over 450 million copies of her books. She has, uh, the movies have grossed, I think, $8 billion, something like that. I mean, enormously popular. Why? Well, magic is fun, right? And all those series have magic in them. That's kind of interesting. They're very well-written stories. They're intriguing tales. That's certainly true. Uh, With Harry Potter, there's kind of a a cultish sense. If you haven't read it, you're out because everybody else has read it. But I think the reason that they're all popular is this, because each of these authors has tapped into this, this deep, deep embedded desire that we all have to belong. We need to belong, and we need to feel like our existence is important and valuable. And that the group that we belong to is important and valuable. I think about the Harry Potter series. For those of you who haven't read it, uh, Harry Potter is an orphan. His parents have died, and initially you don't know how have they died. Why are, why are they not around? But they're gone. And he has been brought into the home of his aunt, his uncle, and they don't love him. They actually don't even like him. They really wish that he were not around. He's a nuisance, and so they literally put him in a closet under the stairs. That's where he lives. His birthday is never celebrated. He is largely ignored. But then one day, a letter shows up for him from an owl. Okay? So he gets an owl letter. Owl letter comes in, and all of a sudden, he has a sense of belonging. He is invited to the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry where he discovers not just education, but what he gets his family and he gets friends. And he gets a sense of meaning and purpose. And that scar that's on his head is no longer just a blemish, but it's a, it's a mark of, of purpose. There's a destiny that he has. He's important and he belongs. Lord, Lord of the Rings. Uh, who are the heroes in Lord of the Rings? There are lots of heroes, but the primary heroes? Hobbits. Right, little people with furry feet that a lot of people don't even—they don't even know they exist in Middle Earth. But oh, there are actually hobbits. Yeah, and the hobbits are brought into what? Into the Fellowship of the Ring. They're brought into a group and a group that has meaning and purpose and value. Who are the heroes in Chronicles of Narnia? Children, uh, war orphans. Right, their father is away at war and their mother is in, in London, and so they get shipped off to live with their crazy uncle. And there they discover their family, one another, and they value one another, and they work together for a meaningful purpose. And they meet Aslan. They meet Aslan, who dies for them, to redeem them. They belong, and they are loved. See, all of those tales are wildly popular for the same reason, because we all deep down have this desire, this longing to belong and to have meaning and significance to our lives. And you know, fantasy is wonderful, but the reality is so much better. God loves you. God loves you so much that he sent his son to purchase you, to pay for you so that you could belong to his family. God rejected his only begotten son so that you could be adopted. God raised his only begotten son so that you could have hope and you could have life. You could have a family that you belong to and meaning and purpose forever because God loves you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus.
We thank you that you have demonstrated a father's love toward us. In the pain that you took upon yourself in rejecting your son Jesus and and pouring all of our sin into him so that we could be brought into your family. Not as slaves, but as sons. Valued, significant heirs with Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for that this morning. We praise you and we worship you for the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He is risen. Yep, he is. Have a great Easter. We'll see you next week.